we humans have some pretty cool superpowers. We can oppose our finger and thumb, we can strike matches and make fires, but of all the things we can do, it's perhaps our ability to create, manipulate, pass around and store ideas using language that most marks us out from other species. Where do we get this? Well, we all learn a language when we're growing up, but how did that tool come about in the first place? Where does language come from? Our guest this week is Professor Simon Kirby. He's the head of linguistics and English language at the University of Edinburgh, where he's also one of the founders for the Centre for Language Evolution and Change. And it's this that we'll be talking about. Simon will take us through a wonderfully elegant set of experiments that he's run over the last decades with many colleagues. In these experiments, agents, they could be computer programs, they could be people, they could even be baboons. Agents are taught a mapping of words, of sounds, symbols, or um, signs to concepts. But the initial mapping that they're given is completely random. It's not systematic at all. There's no way of putting things together. Incredibly, what they show is that as this uh, language, this kind of proto-language, if you like, is passed down through generation to generation. So it's taught to a first generation, they taught, teach it to a second generation, and so on, in what's called iterated learning experiments, which, which Simon and his team have really pioneered. As this happens, systematicity emerges. Incredibly, the fallibility of learners, the mistakes that are made as the language passes from generation to generation, don't just add noise, they add up to something. Just like with biological evolution, there seems to be a direction that actually doesn't come from design, but just from simple constraints. So this is an incredible founding, and I really enjoy going over the wonderfully imaginative experiments that, um, that have been run in this field. We end up talking a little bit about art, and I should mention that Simon really underplays his achievements here. He's, he actually has won a BAFTA for one of his pieces. If you enjoy this conversation, I'd strongly encourage you to Google Simon Kirby, look at his artworks, listen to the album that he's just released, and uh, enjoy these beautiful experiments that we discuss. And with that, I'm James Robinson. You're listening to Multiverses. Simon Kirby, thanks for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. What's special about language? That's a great place to start. The, the question of why why would we study this thing at all, really? I mean, one, one answer to that is that it is the thing probably above anything else that marks us out as human. It's, I, I would say, it's our species' best trick. I mean, all, all species have, have something special, and for us, it's language, I think. So if we're to understand what it means to be human, then we really need to understand how language works and why we have it. But I suppose that, that kind of begs a possibly more important question, which is, why is language so special? We do know that... Basically, all living things communicate. You know, bacteria communicate to each other. Flowers communicate the location of nectar to bees. So 
communication isn't special to humans. It's, it's absolutely ubiquitous. But the kind of communication that we're able to do with language is, it seems to me, radically different from the communication that we see elsewhere in nature. And that's simply that with language, we can talk about anything. And that's really, really unique. There's no other species that we know of that can just spontaneously convey a message that's about anything at all. And if you think about it, that's that's really extraordinary. Like how how on earth are we able to just reach into the kind of bottomless well of ideas and pull one out and then make a bunch of noises or move our hands and bodies about if we're using a sign language and convey that idea to another human, maybe one someone we've never met before, yeah. and have really be really pretty confident that we'll get that idea across. There's like a certain, what perhaps makes it even more surprising is that of all the kind of animals on the planet or all the living things on the planet, humans are pretty we look pretty similar to each other, right? So we come in very set shapes, whereas plants will, you know, grow in all sorts of forms and like dogs are like, you know, way more varied. So there's something very finite, I guess, in the way that we're arranged. And yet we have this system, which is kind of infinite in its capabilities, it seems, and can be constructed in any different way. And just to give like a little precursor, I think of what's going to what's to come is that it almost seems like our the finiteness not just of us but any kind of living thing is is part of the story of what can what causes language to pop up as it were to kind of emerge out of out of nothing absolutely yeah and i think as you say we, we will get get there i mean i think when we look at that fact the kind of we're immediately faced with this kind of duality, which I think is a really important duality between us as a biological entity in the world, you know, mm. humans, and our behaviors, including language, but also all sorts of other behaviors that we engage in that seem to sit somehow apart from our biology. Um, mm. So the languages that we speak, like the language I'm using now, English, obviously it has risen somehow from the biology of English speakers, but that seems like a not a great, or not a very satisfying explanation for the facts of English, right? That, that yeah. yeah, it came from a bunch of humans. So there's something else going on uh, with language, which is quite different from, say, the the signaling system in bacteria. There's there's an there's another part to the story that isn't purely biological for understanding the nature of language, and that that part is is, is culture. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that that really interests me about language is that it's clearly something that's part of culture in the most broad sense of how we define culture as being the set of behaviors that are passed on by 
social learning from you know one generation to the next so language is part of that like i the language i'm speaking now i i'm speaking because i was exposed to it when i was growing up by by my parents but and the other people in my speech community and my kids speak english because they grew up around me uh, and so on over generations so so languages are transmitted through this thing that we would call cultural transmission but the other thing is that culture itself a lot of the aspects of of human culture are themselves carried by language so we have this really interesting quite complicated and maybe we'll get into it relationship between the cultural products of humanity everything like the the, the computer i'm using now to talk to you being ultimately possible because of language because we're able to convey you know instructions and able to support these very elaborate cultural um, behaviors yeah um, yeah, it's, but that system itself is culturally transmitted. So we've yeah. got this kind of strange, tangled web of things going on there. Absolutely, yeah. Just a quick tangent. There's one of these interesting... Uh, John Searle, philosopher of language, so coming at this from a very different ang- angle, he pointed out that language has this strange... You can sort of think of language as either... as often as a mapping of the world to words. Whereas in his view, intentions are almost the opposite. When you want something, you're sort of trying to map the world to, you're trying to map your intentions to the world. You're trying to make the world like your intentions, whereas you're trying to make your words like the world. But actually language makes things go both ways. So you can actually say something and make it true. Like one of his classic examples is like war is declared. <laughs> like that is the declaration that makes the uh, the statement true. So it's a very, very small instance. But as you say, there's this very complicated interplay between language shaping all the things that we do and then those things shaping back on to the languages that we have. Yeah as we start to look at that that kind of interaction between the world, the, the human world, the world we're, we're actually living in, and language, and we see these kind of, these kind of profound multi-way connections between the two, I think it becomes more and more apparent that we have to accept that a, an understanding of language and an understanding of humans, actually, that is purely biological, is really not up to the task of 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 really mapping out what it means to be human but equally i'm not i'm not espousing a view that says that we have to just sort of leave our biology behind and and try and understand humanity purely as a cultural phenomenon i don't think that's right either i think what's exciting about the field i work in evolutionary linguistics is that we're trying to figure out we're trying to understand language as in the broad in the broader sweep right we're, 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 we're trying to see how it fits into our understanding of of uh, the natural world 
and try and understand what happens when, you know, a creature evolves that has this new system that supports this 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 the emergence of this cultural process on 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 the planet and how how that affects the biology of of humans and how human biology affects that process and 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 what happens when that process gets up and running and what yeah. things have changed because of that yeah i think this is probably a good good moment to sort of lead into I guess the core of your work, which is sort of making good on that promise that those wonderful capabilities of language, that 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 structure that that emerges, which gives you the compositionality and, and the ability to put together concepts in, in arbitrary ways, that comes from or is related, or yeah, comes from the process of cultural transmission. That's a very bold claim. How do you, yeah, you know, how can we see that? We can't see that, or, or can we yeah. see that, like by looking in the past and looking at, I don't know, yeah, artifacts that have been left, or I mean, it's, it's yeah. I th so I'll lay a little bit of groundwork first. So so you mentioned compositionality there, and I think that's a good place to start. So I. I I've said, you know, with language we can we can convey an unlimited set of messages to to people and meanings to people, and the way we do that is it's actually incredibly simple, and it's so simple it's a it's very surprising to me anyway that we don't see it all over the place in nature, and and the way we are able to have this kind of enormous expressivity in language is simply the fact that language is made up of parts that can be recombined. I mean, it's just really as simple as that. To put it, to put it another way, language has words, right? Uh, it, it seems almost banal. It's so obvious and simple. So I can explain, I can talk about new things because I can take words that you and I both know and put them together in new combinations. I mean, really, is that simple? And and by doing that, I can convey a new, a new meaning that's mm -hmm. never been uttered before um, in the history of the planet. And and you can actually do that. You probably do that every day without realizing it. You're probably every day some some large proportion of what you the noises you make will have never been made before, and the meanings you'll convey will have never been conveyed before. And it's just like. Yeah, no, it's non, non yeah. it's not an event. Yeah, no one's giving us like prizes for that. It's yeah, yeah. you know, you're not running downstairs and said, I've made a new message, I've made a new sentence. Um, so I mean that seems like a very simple design trick, right? Like make a, your communication system consist of a finite repertoire of parts and allow them to combine together and then compose meanings out of the meanings of those parts. But with a handful of kind of interesting possible exceptions, that that is uniquely human. So this compositionality, um, which is the technical term for that, um, was definitely something that that we wanted to try and understand the origins of. 
So back when I was just finishing up as a PhD student and was getting interested in some of these ideas, I mean, the dominant way of thinking about that was to imagine that we had some uh, kind of organ, like a biological faculty, cognitive piece of machinery that would have encoded in it the capacity to do that. And that really trying to understand the origins of something like that was about understanding how the genes that would create such an organ would proliferate in a population. So notice that that's an entirely kind of biological take on things. You know, you have a brain that can't do compositionality and then some genes are favoured that create a brain that can do compositionality. And and once you've explained why those might be favoured in this population of primates, then you've, you've done your explanation. But that sets aside this whole thing that we've been talking about, which is the idea that language is transmitted from one generation to another. You know, it English that's compositional, right? And English isn't created by my genes, not directly. I learned English because I do have the cognitive machinery that allows me to learn English. And I use English because I have the cognitive machinery that allows me to use English. But the, the details of that language don't spring from my genes. They, they come from the fact that English is a cultural phenomenon that's passed down over generations of people. So I, w- I was interested in, like, well, what does this other process, this cultural process, add to uh, the explanation? And how can we investigate it? So this was back in the 90s. And the the only way I could think of uh, investigating it was to try and build models of the process of cultural transmission um, in computer simulations. So I would try and come up with simplified models of language learning that I could implement in a computer simulation. And then I would make a population in the simulation of miniature language learners and then have them communicate with each other have them go through their lives be born and die pass on their language to the next generation and so on and the idea of these simulations is you start them out with miniature languages that didn't have this compositional structure so basically every thing that needed to be said was said with a completely unique set of sounds. So there was no parts that were reused. And then just, I would set the simulations off. At the time, like these, one run of the simulation would take two or three weeks. Um, (laughs) It was a very frustrating process to to try and debug my code because it would run for like 10 days and then crash. (laughs) <laughs> I'd try and figure out why it had crashed at a particular point. But to my delight, what happened again and again under all sorts of different assumptions and all sorts of different models of learning and so on is that compositionality would emerge 
out of this process of transmission from one generation to the next in in the computer models. So that was a that was a real kind of goosebump moment. Like, and then then the real work began, which was to try and understand why. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I I actually tried this recently with ChatGPT because I thought, look, <laughs> I can just I'll give it a word list and I'll uh, you know assign some random set. I was doing it in hexadecimal. So I'll just give some random symbols that it needs to learn as words uh, to one instance of chat GPT and ask it to learn them. And then, you know, the read those back to me. If it makes any mistakes, I'll put them into the next instance. And I was hoping to reproduce your whole chain, but the problem was that it just didn't make any mistakes. <laughs> so I guess... <laughs> The, the key to your and actually I did then ask because you can you know be very specific I said oh actually make some mistakes but the mistakes <laughs> that it made were just too um regular so it would just it would take my symbol and it would just offset it by it would just move it by one so it would take like a number in hexadecimal and move it move it and, it and it would just consistently get everything wrong by one so it's it's somehow not doing you know what humans actually do and what I presume you you, you must have built into your simulations which is make some mistakes right but i suppose make mistakes in a particularly kind of human way (laughs) right this is great we're we're getting to the heart of the matter so yeah so if you think about evolution evolution is is driven in some sense that without mistakes without error there's no change okay so so if if something is if you have some evolutionary process that has perfect copying then nothing will happen right so in in biology change happens partly due to mutations where you know a cosmic ray will hit a piece of dna and change something uh, about it or by by the fact that but inbuilt into sexual reproduction is recombination. So we end up with kids that aren't, thank God, clones of their parents. So, so the biology has this process that generates variation, generates change. And of course, culture does too, right? Like the, the languages that we speak are slightly different from the languages that we heard and our language continues to move. Now, so an evolutionary process has to have, I mean, we can think of those as errors, it, it doesn't really matter, but it has to have some, some place where innovation happens. And it, it's, my, it's my feeling, and maybe we'll get into this, that the, the way that happens in culture and biology are, are actually quite different and importantly different, but some of my colleagues disagree with me and say there's actually a very close analogy between biological evolution and cultural evolution. I don't think that's quite right. But I'll try and I'll try and we'll we'll take it right back to that that first simulation I, I did. We'll try and work out I'll try and explain why we got the results that we did, um, why compositionality emerges. Um and it all all boils down to a decision I had to make when setting up the simulations, which is basically how long is the lifetime 
of my simulated people. Okay. I could make them live a really long time, so long that by the end of their lives, they will have heard all the things that in the little world that I'd given them to talk about, they would have heard everything expressed. There'd be no new ideas for them to to observe. Um, if you do that, then basically you, you end up with very little happening, right? So, so the my simulated agents actually had perfect memory and if they heard some something in their world being talked about by another simulated individual they would remember how that was expressed and just store it and so when it was their turn to talk about that thing they would just reproduce it and so there we have this kind of perfect copying right so this initial random unstructured language we gave the agents, which is agents is what we call our simulated individuals. We give these agents this random unstructured language at the start. If their life, if their lives are too long, then they just learn it perfectly. And over generations, nothing happens. So there's no evolution. So what I did was I, I shortened the length of the lifespan of my simulated individuals so that they weren't guaranteed to hear every possible sentence. Right. Right. So, so what would that would mean is sometimes they were called upon to say something that they'd never heard said themselves, which if you think about it, that's exactly what we do in language all the time, right? So the space of possible things that we might want to talk about is, is vastly bigger than the set of sentences that we've heard in our lifetimes up to this point. What that means is we're constantly generalizing. We're constantly trying to go beyond the data that we saw to talk about new things. And so I set that set it up with this parameter, which is basically the lifetime of the agents, so that they too had to talk about things they hadn't heard talked about. And so then when you think about what, what happens then, so you're suddenly asked to say something that you don't know how to say. Um, and what my agents did is if they had no idea how to say it, they would just produce something, they would just produce something random. So I built in this kind of like random invention process. Um, so that produced this, 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 process of change over generations in in the simulation. Now, if you think about that, what's happening, right? So you've got a random language that it starts off with. It's got no structure. There's no parts that are being reused. And then it changes because the agents don't see all of that language. And so they have to generate new random sentences. And so the next generation hears another random language. So it feels like nothing's going to happen interesting here. And when I set this simulation up, I, I kind of thought, okay, this isn't going to work, but I'll try. It feels like nothing should happen that's interesting. It should just like endlessly be lots of random utterances. But the, the lovely thing that happens is that sometimes, just by chance, you could have two sentences produced by one of the agents that were let's say about something similar in the world in their little simulated world 
And the two sentences might share, just by chance, share some aspect of their signal. So there might be some little bit of what they said that was similar between these two sentences mm-hmm. that just by chance corresponded to something in the world that was similar. Right. And what they would do sometimes is that they would make a mistake and they would think that this little piece of signal actually corresponded to that little thing in the world. So they would kind of hallucinate, if you like, a word where there hadn't been one before. It was just random chance, but they think it's a word. And what happens then is that every time that agent wants to talk about that thing, it uses that word. So it sort of reinforces it. Exactly, exactly. And so then the next generation is exposed to a language which suddenly has this repeating little subunit in it in, because it was generated by this, this individual in the last generation. And so they, they learn that, that subunit and it persists over time. And so what happens is <clears throat> very rapidly... Um, you start getting these pieces of structure. And once they're there, they stick because they're easier to learn. Um, But it's all driven by this kind of finiteness of the lifetime of the individuals. Um, Because if there wasn't that, there wouldn't be um, this pressure to, to come up with ways of communicating that can be, can can survive through this limited lifespan of the individuals. Yeah. And uh, some people might be thinking, oh, well, congratulations, you've proved that computers can generate language, right? But, you know, I've made enough coding errors to know that uh, sometimes (laughs) the things that I've written, when I I try to actually, um, you know, look at the real world, my simulation doesn't quite match it. But Absolutely. remarkably, you, you, you've kind of done similar experiments with, you know, real people. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe take us through one of those. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess like the, 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 there was a few years after that kind of those, ex, those simulations where I was immediately faced with that. You know, I would go to conferences and describe this and people would be like, well, that's nice. <laughs> if they understood at all. And so I would try and I would first, first approach to that, that problem was I was trying to understand the generality behind it. So like, what yeah. is this general process that creates this structure? And so I would do this thing with lots of different, I would rewrite the simulation from scratch using completely different models of learning. So I use neural networks or use something else or whatever. And I would try a bunch of different ways of doing it. And then, um, other people in different labs tried to replicate the result and so on. But I, it was slightly frustrating because it did feel, you know, we, we ended up having like conferences where there would be a room where the computer modelers talk to each other. Right. <laughs> like yeah. literally the, the, the evolution of language conferences, there would be a track that was for the computer simulation people and so we had a great time, kind of, but it also felt like we weren't really having the impact we felt we ought to have because we were just talking to each other and it didn't seem that people really understood what, what the hell we were doing. And, and one, of, one of the problems is that it became more and more technical 
and less and less clear to the to to your average like linguist or or you know evolutionary biologist what on earth we were playing at um, but to me the the insight that I really wanted to hold on to was was this very very simple idea that there are structures in language that are, are it's possible to learn with a finite set of um, sentences given to you. And because the fi- there's a finite set of sentences given to each generation in cultural transmission, those properties of language are actually inevitable. So there's, there's actually an, there is an insight into the, to cultural evolution that says, wherever you've got a learner that has to generate, generalize from a finite subsample of data, generalizations will emerge over generations. And that, that seemed to me to be an incredibly general point that, that isn't just even just about language. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. was still not the, we still weren't getting traction with all of the simulation work. Um, so, so we took a turn, I guess, sort of about 10 years later, that we moved from doing work in computer simulation to doing work in people, uh, real people. And the story behind why that happened is is is, is, is quite a funny one. So I'll, I'll give you a little. I'll give you the anecdote of how we ended up doing um, doing experiments with people instead of simulations. So I had a. A uh, quite brilliant uh, MSc student at the time, Hannah Cornish, and she was doing an MSc in developmental linguistics uh, in in Edinburgh. And she'd done with me as as an undergraduate student some computer simulations of language evolution, um, and that's what she wanted to do her dissertation on. So she wanted to do some of these cultural transmission experiments which we call iterated learning experiments, by the way. In, in simulation, she wanted to do this. Um, but her program director said at the time the, that MSc had a rule that said you had to do your dissertation um, with an experiment on human participants. Right, okay. But she wasn't allowed to do wow. her planned uh, study yeah. with, in simulation. Um, and so she came to me and said, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to be able to do this project because, because I have to do an experiment. And, but she, <laughs> she is quite stubborn and we both are, I think. Um, and we thought, well, let's just do exactly what we planned. Um, but do it with people instead of, instead of these pieces of computer code so we set up exactly the same um, design, but where where she was planning to have, like, I think neural networks, we would just get people into the lab and teach them these kind of unstructured languages and then get them to produce sentences in, from the unstructured language that we trained them on and then take the output of each of those participants in the lab and give it to the next 
generation of participants who came into the lab. So we just did a drop in, like replace the neural network with people. And that turned out to, that MSE dissertation turned out to be my uh, most cited uh, paper. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> because what we found was exactly the same phenomenon. We, we get this, these unstructured languages becoming compositional over generations just through this process of transmission from one generation to the next. Yeah. One one of the experiments that I really like, because I think it makes it very clear exactly, you know, how some of the, uh, how people can latch on and create a structure which allows them to even figure out words that they've not seen before. And I think it, it, the, the experiment I'm thinking of and I don't know if it's the one you're referring to, Hannah Cornish, but it's the the sign language one where you have mm. a few kind of different themes. So you've got, was it religion, yeah. food, and um, you've got this kind of two dimensional structure of categories. So you've got themes down one axis, and then you've got um, actions down, um, or sorry, functions down another. So one function might be uh, place, or one functional category might be place. So the place for religion would be a church. Maybe another functional category was um, maybe action. So that could be to pray or to preach. can't remember exactly the ones that you, yeah, you picked out, but you had this kind of matrix of, uh, and then again, you start with every, you teach people a sign language where everything, there's, there's, there's 16 combinations because there's four by four grid. And each one of those 16 words is like completely different sign. Yeah. yeah. And first generation is taught it. They have to reproduce it. And the symbols that they reproduce are given to the, the next generation and so on. And yeah, you should describe the results because. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I am very fond of that experiment. I think it's that that was work by Yasmin Motamedi. I think it's a really beautiful study. And. The, the motivation to move into that gestural modality was partly because um, the other place where you can see this process I've been talking about happening, not in computer simulation and not in the lab, but in the mm. real world, is the cases where new sign languages spontaneously emerge. And there's about, I think, 60 or 70 of these right now, currently, that people have discovered of these spontaneous sign languages. And these occur in the world due to either uh, deaf kids of hearing parents who are brought together in a school uh, context for the first time, or because, because of a gene for deafness spreading often in a, in a very remote population and suddenly a large number of deaf individuals being born in the in a village, say. Um, and what's really remarkable is that we go very rapidly from mm -hmm. something that looks l kind of arguably less structured than a, a typical uh, human sign language, or a typical more mature sign language, into something that looks very, very familiar to anyone who has studied sign languages. Um, so... 
that work had originally been so those results had originally been kind of hailed by people who wanted to say that the capacity for language is is innate it's part of this biological faculty that i was talking about earlier mm-hmm. and that even even when the the culture there isn't this culture of of uh, shared language we still spontaneously create it mm-hmm. but what i i feel quite strongly is that actually it's a demonstration of the power of this cultural process it it's it's very rapid but we can actually observe it happening um in these in these situations so we wanted to recreate that process in the lab as well and have participants do this uh, iterated learning kind of experiment with this gestural modality else it's a lot of fun <laughs> you know basically getting people to to play charades for a living it's great the th- the thing that w- that we discovered with that study that i think is really important and actually added something to what we'd found 20 years earlier with the simulations was that this there are two really important processes at play that create this structure that we've been talking about this compositional structure and um, previously we'd been thinking really that it's learning that that mm-hmm. matters it's the fact that you have to learn language at each generation but that study and a couple of others that that we did around about the same time showed that that wasn't the only pressure that mattered. There's another pressure which which is coming from communication. Mm-hmm. So what what Yasmin did in that study was she compared a situation like you described, where people having to see a bunch of gestures for a particular meaning, and then they have to reproduce those gestures and and then the next generation sees their gestures video recordings of their gestures and has to reproduce them so that's a kind of what we would have thought of at the time as a kind of standard iterated learning process where you see this set of gestures that's been culturally transmitted from one generation to the next by by learning now what what we find with with that setup is actually quite quite weird. The gestures start to look really over elaborate. So over time, they became longer and longer. And they had, arguably, they had parts. So sometimes you would see gestures you talked about church for example so a gesture for church might have a part that corresponded to building and another part that corresponded to religion but they were really unsystematic and they were all over the place and they were very long so and each generation made the set of gestures longer and longer and longer more and more kind of baroque Hmm. didn't really look particularly structured it didn't look like the kinds of things that we we were expecting where we would have expected this, like you talked about this matrix of meanings. <clears throat> we were expecting really two part signs, one for mm-hmm. the kind of religion and another one for building, let's say. So the other thing that Yasmin did was she got people to do this experiment. And instead of transmitting it down over many generations, she got pairs of particip- 
participant in and they had to play a little communication game with each other mm-hmm. so you know much more more like a game of charades where so one participant would be given a meaning to convey and then the other participant would watch and have to guess what the meaning was and then they would swap roles mm-hmm. and they were both shown this an initial unstructured set of gestures at the start <clears throat> and what happened there also was weird very different but also didn't look like like a sign language. So what happened there was that the gestures got really, really short and mm-hmm. really efficient, and they would be completely arbitrary-seeming. So one gesture would just be a movement of the hand, mm. um, and then it would be church. So these guys got, got, got really good at there. understanding each other. Yeah, and they exactly. Just, yeah. And, and you know, you know, when you look at it, what's going on there is is that these two participants are having a lot of time playing together, and they they get this shorthand for conveying all of the meanings perfectly, and they mm-hmm. can learn it. So, so neither just the process of transmission by learning, iterated learning, nor the process of communication between the pair for a long time was sufficient to give the kind of structure we were looking for. But if you put both of them together, then it works. So, so the, the the kind of real experiment, the experiment that gives the result that's exciting is where you have pairs of participants playing this kind of communication game with each other, and then a new pair of participants come in and see the gestures of the previous pair and then play the communication game. And then a new pair of participants come in and... Um, see the gestures of the previous one. So you have this kind of process where, whereby there's communication within a generation and then there's cultural transmission across generations. And then you get this like absolutely crystal clear uh, system where there's one sign for like religion, um, another sign for building and and all of the signs mm-hmm. of these three parts very crisp, very efficient, um, very structured. Yeah. So there, effectively, you just need kind of eight symbols in this example, like one, one, four for the the theme, religion, yeah. uh, food, um, etc. Uh, I think one was photography. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting set you picked, and then one for the uh, the kind of function. Well, actually, the the cute thing that's what I would have said too. Uh, but actually, mm-hmm. the cute thing is you only need seven. Okay, um, so there's one, fact, no one, yeah. Yeah, so in fact, that's what, what happens. So the, the, the system that comes out, it has one of them as a default. Um, I guess uh, that's what we call one hot encoder. In, uh... Yeah, right. So <laughs> it's, it's, and it's really striking uh, to me that this these these cultural processes can come up with optimal design um, really efficiently and it's like no one is inventing this stuff right there's no one in there going I know like if we have to define describe these 16 meanings because they you know they're, they're just there for, for like 15 minutes and they're not going like right, right here's how we should de- de- design it we should take one of these and make it default and then not have a second part for that and then all the others should have like you know there's no no there's no genius in there like creating this system but the collective actions 
of this population in the in the in the lab is creating a a linguistic system that is like exquisitely well designed for the two pressures that we've put on it, which is to be useful for communication and to be learnable um, by the next generation. And again, this feels to me like a kind of important lesson about culture is that culture can optimize and jointly optimize for these various pressures that we put on it. And these are, these optimizations are not the product of design. They're not the product of, of intelligent design on the behalf of, of the, the carriers of culture, us. And we've seen that again and again, actually. So we have a whole host of experiments where we change things about frequency and we, we change the signal channels so that it's costly in various ways. And, and the languages that come out are just these beautifully optimized systems and i think that's really made us think a lot about um you know where the engine for explanation of human behavior should lie you know and 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 yeah i guess i guess sort of teaching us that culture is this incredibly powerful computational system in its own right um, and I'm not sure if I totally understand yet the implications of that. They go beyond language, though. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I want to loop back to the the point I made very early, which is just that it's the, it's the generational aspect, but also the fact that within each generation, there's a kind of finite amount of time that people spend collaborating, communicating with one another. And also at the kind of generational shifts, there's the fallibility of our, our, our learning. And so in both cases, it's, you know, because we are quite limited beings, that language evolves. And, and there's like a, one of the surprises here, and I, we, can, we can talk about this presently, is, is those limitations we, we, we seem to share with our other animals, right? Yeah. They're also so there's a little bit of a mystery here. As you say, we get this wonderful system, but it, it almost seems too easy, right? So and I think one thing that one might think here is, oh, this is to do with categories. So I, I think in the philosophy of language field, people get really hung up, not so much on the compositionality and those things about language, although it's of lots of interest, but they're they're just really interested in. I guess how language is managing to represent stuff and that we have this, yeah, we have this model that of the world, right. Which is language. And and one might say, well, the reason this experiment works is, is that humans already have that kind of categorization into function and into theme and, so it makes it easier for them when something kind of maps that. And with your kind of computer simulations as well, I guess you, you said, well, the, when, the, when the program or the agent was presented with two, 
two kind of stimuli, two things that it was trying to express that were sem- two kind of states of the world which are similar, and it happened to produce um, mm. linguistic expressions which were similar. That would be striking to it, but it obviously, you know, you have to, and there's no way around this. You have to kind of sneakily encode, well, not sneakily, but you have to encode into the agent that it has this kind of concept of similarity in states yeah. of the world, and. I don't know if there is any way of explaining that or if that's uniquely human either. One expects that animals can also have like, you know, they seem to have a pretty good concept of time and space and probably and of similarity and, uh, and therefore that doesn't seem particularly unique, but it is, I mean, that might be just one of those hard problems <laughs> that can never be solved. Sort of like how. I think- I mean, I think you're you're thinking along the right line. So one way of thinking about how to tackle these kind of questions is to think, what are the minimal requirements to get something like this process that I've talked about up and running? And that's that tends to be where I think simulations are really good. Like like as you can say, how dumb can I make my simulation and still see this kind of thing happening? And so for for compositionality, I think the sorts of things you need, you need some measure of similarity. You hit the nail on the head there. You need need a a notion of similarity between things that you're expressing, the meanings or things out there in the world. And you need a similarity measure over signals. So you have to have two two signals. All the signals can't be completely distinct from one another. In, because then there's nothing for the structure to 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 hang off. So those are two things you need, two, two basic requirements. I think they're both very achievable by pretty much anything, right? So like I, I, it seems inconceivable to me that any animal could be successful in the world if if it didn't have some similarity metric. <laughs> For the world, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That would just really bizarre. Whether or not they, I mean, for signals, that's a little bit more um, of an open question. But you would need that too. Then the other thing you need is you need a bias for representing a mapping between those two spaces: the space of meanings and space of signals. And that bias has to prefer simpler mappings. It turns out that that's a key thing that drives all of this, is that the simplest mapping between a world of meanings that has some similarity metric on it and a world of signals that has some similarity metric on it, the simplest mapping between those two is one that preserves similarity from one space in as much as it can in the other. So a compositional language is one which is similarity preserving so similar meanings have similar signals i guess I mean, um, it's quite easy to conjecture that or and i suppose you don't even need to conjecture because you can see it in your simulations but i i would guess that the pressure to have a simple mapping is almost like the same as the pressure to make things easily learnable like to have exactly 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 so 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 the obvious question that sort of leaps out of all of this is like, how much can I assume these three things 
as being just sort of like I don't have to argue for them. I don't have to 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 mount some special pleading that humans have these. Or, and I actually think any animal would have these. So, so there is a line of thought that says that basically all learners have a bias for simplicity. So there's there's work by people like Nick Chater and colleagues that talk about a kind of universal bias for simplicity. And you can see it in in things like Occam's razor, which is the yeah. kind of idea that that we should prefer simple explanations. So there's a sense in which there's this is sort of things that we're allowed to to take take for granted is that that it's reasonable to assume that learners will want will be biased towards simple explanations. And a simple explanation of a mapping between two structured spaces is all that we need in order to 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 get this process to work. Now, it doesn't give you structured language. You still need the cultural process, which has to include learning and communication in order to get structured language. But but if you've got those 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 elements in play, then then that will work. Now, so all, all that kind of argumentation kind of feels like it's pointing towards the fact that language should be absolute structured language should be absolutely ubiquitous like it yeah. should be everywhere like you know why we started with saying this is uniquely human and it's our special trick and and so it feels almost like I've massively shot myself in the foot right I've, I've, I've mounted an You've argument that it's, yeah. it's like like this should just be everywhere so the very thing that we were trying to understand suddenly becomes all the more mysterious. But I think what I think the way to really address that question or to get at that 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 puzzle is to think that what we've actually done is shifted the goalposts. I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but we'll go with it. So previously the question was how did our species end up getting this kind of this compositional structure let's say what why do why how did we end up with the biology that somehow encodes the structural properties of language and instead now i'm saying how did our species end up with this engine this cultural engine that creates language structure and actually that's completely different and I think a much more tractable question so in order to get structured behavior off the ground um, what we're saying is we need cultural transmission and of a particular kind we need cultural transmission that has this iterated learning aspect and this communicative aspect so now we can go and look at other species and say, well, where do we find these things? Where do we find learned signaling systems? Are they transmitted culturally? Do they involve communication in the sense of communicating about meanings and so on? And start looking for, for these, these kind of pieces of this cultural machinery elsewhere in nature. And that's where I think uh, we start to see what's really needed, what biological evolution needed to, to deliver 
for us as a species in order to get this cultural process off the ground? Yeah, so we we need to we need to be learners. Mm-hmm. It's I've I've sort of um, I recently I recently came across this wonderful experiment which you, you're probably aware of. This might seem like a tangent, but I think it does address the point. From Victoria Horner and Andy Whiten, just based based over the over the Firth in uh, St Andrews, where I think it's maybe a couple of decades old, but they looked at chimps and they had this experiment with a box where you showed a chimp that if you poked in the top of the box and the side of the box, a little treat would come out. And they showed this to chimps and uh, and children, and they you know they both learned to poke up hole in the top and poke. Poke the stick through the side. Poke the stick through the hole in the top, and then and then through the side, and you got you got a treat. But then they repeated it, and they made it a transparent box, and it became apparent that you didn't need to poke the stick through the the top hole. It's just poking it through the side hole, which produced the chip, the treat. And the the chimps, you know, clever that they are, they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to bother poking the stick through the top hole right what's the you know i can see that that's that's doing nothing but the children still did both yeah. so sort of in you know going against all of the empirical evidence these you know dumb kids put a priority i think i think it's called over imitation that's right on on copying what uh, another human was doing and and that you know, maybe that's one of the kind of uniquely human things that then leads, sets the chain in motion, I guess, to this, the development of language. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think that's, I love that, that work. And that work's often talked about in the context of cultural evolution, or generally saying that, although culture isn't uniquely human, there are a lot of species that have it, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it, it it's not massively common in other species, but it is there, which is great because that means we can actually start doing some, you know, comparative work looking at culture in different species and see how it's similar or different to human culture. But in the culture, the cultural evolution folks emphasize cumulative culture as something that seems either uniquely human or, or at least rare elsewhere. And cumulative culture is the idea that, that we build cultural products that, that over multiple generations <clears throat> accumulate often in complexity. And so without cumulative culture, we wouldn't have laptops and things, right? Because, mm. because it has to build on multiple kind of uh, innovations that have gone before. So one of their, their questions is like, what, what's needed for cumulative culture? And one of the things that has been argued in that literature is that it needs very high fidelity copying. Mm-hmm. And the over-imitation stuff has been used as, as possible evidence for very high fidelity copying as a kind of bias that human infants have and, and humans generally actually have the desire to copy. Uh, I think, you know, I think there's there's maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. to be thought about with that. and and I, But I do think it's very relevant to language. So 
actually what I think we need to be doing now is really thinking about precisely what kind of learning is needed for language to take off in the way that I've described. Like we actually have to get into the details. Um, and is that learning, is that type of learning the sorts of sort of learning that we see in these over imitation experiments. So there are people mm. working on on um, really getting into the details of of what's going on in language learning and how that relates to um, learning in other species. So people like Inbal Anon, who is working on who's who has a lot of work on the idea that language learners, infants have this bias to start learning holes and then only later discover parts in, in those mm. in those holes, which actually aligns really well with the results of our a lot of our experiments and our simulations. Um, mm. So one of the things I think I, I, I suspect that's coming in the next um, few years will be a kind of mapping between what we know about language learning onto social learning, more broadly in humans, but also social learning in other species. So I think this is very exciting because we're actually starting to get into the, the nitty gritty. We're saying exactly what kind of cultural transmissions needed for language, mm. and exactly those kind of experiments, over imitation experiments, give us a kind of clues as to what's different across species, and. Yeah, so then we can do the the next step, which is to say what you know what biological mechanisms support that kind of learning, yeah, and and how might they have evolved? Um, you know, what are the evolutionary pressures that give gave humans this propensity for a particular kind of copying? Yeah, um, it might not have it might have nothing to do with language. I mean, I I personally think it's a reasonable hypothesis. That language is an accidental byproduct of of changes in the way in which we we uh, learn information from conspecifics. Yeah, I mean, it's not not out of the question that that n- none of the adaptations are there because of the consequences they had for language. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly very hard to imagine language sort of evolving as nature's trying to get us better at better at you know expressing some signs that map onto the world. So it's kind of like a a spandrel which has come about because <laughs> we've just got very good at passing, you know, copying useful behaviors from one another, and we get so I suppose trusting at that that even when the behavior doesn't seem useful, when we can't see the utility, we'll do it. I mean, it is, I mean, that maps very well onto, you know, the fact that almost all of our knowledge comes from testimony and language rather than from things that we we see in the world. And yet. I mean, I actually think there's some beautiful experiments that suggest that uh, language has got a lot less to do with useful information transfer than, than, we like to think. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. there's some lovely experiments by um, Gareth Roberts uh, and colleagues where uh, they had pairs of participants communicating over a chat interface um, for, an, I think, an hour or something. Um, and they're just, like, typing away, just chatting about whatever they wanted. 
and unbeknownst to the participants, halfway through, they swapped partners. But this was completely right. Hidden. So right. you would just suddenly be talking to somebody who'd been in the middle of a half hour conversation about something else. Yeah. And then this uh, sounds like a brilliant it's just conspiracy theory or something. Like I just wonder if you've been somehow replaced mid conversation now. So, this is shaking so my the, the, the funny finding was, you know, obviously quite a few people noticed, but not everybody. And there's a sizable proportion of people when asked, did anything odd happen in that conversation? They go, no. Um, and I think that that tells you that a lot of what we're doing with language isn't like, you know, it isn't, yeah. it isn't utilitarian. Yeah, that's right. I think it's it, it's very playful. And actually, I wanted to. Well, the next recording that I'll do for this podcast it will is it, going to be with gordon burkhart he's sort of a uh expert on on play right and one of his major contributions was oh, animal animal play in particular i should say although he he i mean he's always at pains to point out that humans are animals too but one of his big contributions was trying to come up with a definition of play that actually is useful because we tend to just you know, we, we think we can recognize play and, and yet, you know, for many years, there were particular species that, that we didn't think could play. And we only had a very kind of loose, um, even though we could recognize it, if you can't define it, it sort of makes it hard to build academic fields around it. Um, so he came up with this five criteria. And one is that the, the activity that's being done is, is not fully functional in the context that it's expressed. And you can really see that with, where I'm going with this is it, language learning looks a lot like play in, in that it seems to meet many of his definitions. So when children just randomly, you know, repeat the words that you're saying, particularly when they're very young, they're not, they're not doing it because, you know, they're just imitating, right? And, and, and play is often very imitative. Another of the criteria is that it's, has to be a kind of repeated activity, but with changes made in the repetition. So that, you know, again, children will say things over and over and like kind of mess around with the words. And, and we'll actually do that ourselves as well, <laughs> even as adults. And another is that it's it's sort of precocious, like it prefigures something that you need later. So uh, there's just so many, you know, to me, a lot of language learning and even language usage yeah. seems to fit this. Yeah. To fit play, you know, certainly when we we're talking, but we're not passing around important information, which is let's face it. Most of the time yeah. <laughs> it's hard to see the functional adaptation. Right. But yeah, it's, it, it, it it's producing something for us. I think, you know, Bocott's ideas here are that, Oh yeah. Finally, the, fu- Another important thing I wanted to mention is that, yeah, play happens under conditions free from stress and sort of mm. disease and, and other evolutionary pressures. And and I think that's kind of part of this key to unlocking where this over-imitation can happen is that we seem to have this kind of excess of resources, which other species don't have. And that kind of relaxes a lot of the, uh, the things that would be... Uh, impeding our play, impeding our learning. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good insight, and I like that direction of thinking. So just maybe something that supports that view. So, and and along the lines of like, what are the minimal requirements that we need in order to get something like this kind of systematic structure and behavior emerging? So we've actually um collaborated uh so myself uh Kenny Smith and uh Nicolas Clerier we collaborated on an attempt to recreate this kind of iterated learning experiment in baboons ah yes so so, yeah. so baboons are not a species that has this kind of behavior in the wild they don't have this systematically structured behavior like like we see in language so we 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 decided to try and run an iterated learning experiment on baboons and nikola has this incredible facility um and down near marseille uh where he has a population of baboons. So they're, they're obviously captive, but they're kind of free roaming and they have an enclosure. Um, and in the enclosure, there are these porter cabins that they can come in and out of whenever they want. And inside the porter cabin is a touchscreen um, and a robotic food dispenser. And the baboon can reach through to the touchscreen and the computer recognizes the baboon and serves them up a, a quick experiment on the touchscreen. And they get reward, depending on however you design the experiment. So Nico is able to set up these experiments, like quite elaborate and complex experiments, and just let them running on this population of baboons and and um, get tens of thousands of data points in in a very short amount of time. So we're able to do experiments with those animals that you would never do in a traditional context yeah. where you have to do interaction. This, this is so amazing, by the way. It's like baboon mechanical Turk. It's just... Uh... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so we, we ran this experiment and we, we had to use um, a behavior that they already knew kind of how to do. And it was a simple task um, where the baboon got was shown a grid of buttons, um, four by four grid of buttons, and four of them would be lit up at random just for a fraction of a second. And then the baboon had to press the buttons that had been lit up. And if they got most of them right, then they would get a food reward. And that was it. And they just did this over and over and over again. Um, but what we were doing is we were recording the baboon's responses, whether or not they were right or wrong, and then using that pattern of responses and transmitting that to the next baboon um, in the experiment. So you start off with these kind of random light patterns, and then these light patterns got transmitted as a set. Well, it was a set of 50, I think, of them were transmitted to the next baboon who would then try and recreate them. Now, the baboons didn't know they were involved in a cultural evolution experiment. They were just pressing buttons, getting monkey chow. But they were. They were part of a cultural evolution experiment. And what happened was that the light patterns evolved over generations, and they evolved to have systematic structure. And completely bizarrely, they evolved to be 
shaped like uh, the Tetris pieces yeah, yeah, that you see in the game of Tetris, which is kind of wild. <laughs> so, so you had these uh, Tetris shapes. Um, now you might think about that, well, maybe those Tetris shapes are easier for the baboon to press. And so the culture was evolving to be easier for the baboon to recreate. But what was really kind of mind-blowing is that actually the opposite is true. It turns out that, and we, we know this because we can test the baboons on a on vast number of, of shapes, they actually find the Tetris shapes harder to copy individually. But when they appear in a set, the baboons copy them more accurately. So what's happening is that the set of patterns is evolving systematic structure so that over the whole set, they're easier for the baboon to copy. So this is another example of that kind of process of, you know, the, this cultural process being, it kind of has this um, incredible computational power that goes beyond what's going on in the individual animal's head. But that's not the reason I raised this. What this shows us is that you can take an animal that doesn't in, engage in this kind of cultural process in the wild, this cultural transmission of sets of complex behaviors that doesn't happen, and nevertheless get it to, to do something that looks actually quite similar to, in, at least formally, computationally, looks quite similar to what we see in language with emergence of systematic structure. So you could say, well, what did we change? What did we do to that animal that made it possible for them to do that? And what we did was we just gave them motivation to copy. We gave them the robotic food dispenser. So the animals were rewarded for copying these patterns. And so to me, that says, if we were to look for a minimal requirement that humans have, is we've got an endogenous reward system for copying. Like, yeah. we just love to copy. Yeah. We just get those happy hormones every time we copy. Um, that's something that biology can can give us, has given us. It's given us some kind of wiring up of the reward system for copying. Yeah. And that's unlocked this new computational evolutionary system of culture that like just rolls out as a consequence of that. And we can see this elsewhere in nature. So in in not everywhere, but in in limited in sorry, not limited, I shouldn't say that, in in, in narrow contexts. So we can just look at bird song, mm -hmm. for example. So birds copy complex behaviors in uh, in other members of their species in their song. And that is very that's underpinned by the reward system in that species that the birds mm -hmm. are rewarded um, endogenously um, for copying uh, song. And again, song is another one of these culturally evolving complex systems that we see in nature. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the example of the boons because, well, firstly, I mean, it does speak to this point really nicely. And it reminds me of one of the, the other of um, the definitions or, or criteria 
for play was that it needs to be pleasurable and, and spontaneous. And so that's what we humans seem to seem to get from imitating others. Um, but the baboon, we had to kind of wire that in um, by by giving them a uh, a fruit reward, monkey chow. And and also just, yeah, it's just a wonderful experiment with baboons. And, and the fact that, well, I learned from uh, watching some of uh, your talks, which I really recommend to listeners because you get to see videos of people doing sign language and all sorts of things. And But yeah, the, the the set of those shapes for Tetris are called the Tetronimos and that the, the baboon has sort of created a grammar that yeah, matches them. Exactly, exactly. And it also shows, yeah, that, I mean, the, the, this kind of structure, like it doesn't need to, it, it emerges just, it's not necessarily to do with the, we, we, you, you can separate out the representative angle of, of language and just look at how, a structure evolves in any kind of learning task. And that also moves us beyond language to other human yeah. behaviors like art and music, I think, yeah. which are also culturally transmitted behaviors that have systematic structure, but they have the pressure to, they don't have the pressure to communicate, at least not in the same way that language does. So they have, they, they, the solutions that cultural evolution finds for music, let's say, are different from the solutions that cultural evolution finds for language because the the pressures to be expressive are different in these different domains. Yeah, there's no clear categories that we're mapping out with music. Yeah, and this is this is a good place to end up because you're also an artist as well as a as a linguist so perhaps you can tell us a bit a bit about your work there i have a couple of your pieces not behind me but uh, yeah you 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 do a lot of different things even within the art world <laughs> like uh, so tell us a little bit about that oh uh, well thank you for bringing that up and thank you for having a couple of my pieces i'm very flattered um yeah this kind of started off Again, I guess, I guess about the same time I started doing experiments on cultural evolution of language. I I was working or hanging out with um, some artists and designers who were doing installation work, and initially I was just thinking that I would it would be fun to kind of help out on the technical side of some of the some of the projects that they were working out uh, working with. But one of the things it taught me very quickly is that the kinds of questions that artists grapple with are are the same as the questions that scientists uh, or the scientists in my area are grappling with. You know, questions about what it means to be human and what are the effects of cultural processes on human behavior and so on. These are all sorts of questions that did not seem unusual or alien to be talking about with my artist friends. And I realized that I'd been brought up with this, or sort of internalized this kind of, this idea that the arts and sciences were somehow radically different from each other and involved, you know, even we're engaged with by very different kinds of people. And I think this is incredibly harmful and just plain wrong. 
So I, I decided, like, I've got no arts background at all myself. Because partly because, you know, I grew up with scientist parents and always wanting to be a scientist and went through all of that and, and you know, stopped all of the parts of school education that weren't servicing that goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I thought, well, why don't I just see what it's like to try and do this stuff? You know, try and try and, you know, tackle some of the questions that I'm tackling scientifically in an artistic world. And I was so lucky to have very, very patient and kind artistic collaborators who are willing to sort of go along with me on that ride. And it ended up with us actually collaborating on a whole series over over 10, 15, actually more, probably more like 20 years now, a whole series of projects, a lot of them that ultimately are, are about human, the, the ways in which humans are changing as a cultural species, particularly mm-hmm. recently with the emergence of things like social media. And that kind of deep, long-lasting collaboration really gave me confidence in in saying it is actually useful to try and engage in artistic production as well as scientific production. And my secret mission is to, to at some point not be able to tell which I'm doing. That's my that's my goal, is not be able to tell on a particular project whether I'm doing art or doing science. And so what one of the one of the things that I've done to try and try and get there is on scientific grants and all the scientific grants I put in an artist in residence as part of the proposal. And and then the idea is not to have this artist in residence just sort of interpret what we're doing as some yeah, kind just, of product. Or just paint you as you go about yeah, exactly, exactly. But to have them have them involved in not not all of the work, but have them involved in thinking about design of experiments, actually run some experiments. And uh, so for example, in my last grant that was looking at um, cultural evolution of these gestural languages, these gestural systems. I had, I was working with Tommy Perman, who's a designer, and we came up with an experiment that was about drawing um, and representing the world through iconic drawings. And we actually ran that on a huge number of participants where they had to copy drawings. And so the hope is eventually we're going to have an exhibit showing cultural evolution of drawings um, that were the product of of Tommy's work um, on that project. And and yeah, and, and I think that it's something I would encourage everyone to think about. Think about the connections between the 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 kind of debates and discussions that are coming out of of work in the arts and work in sciences and realize that there, there are all these insights that you can get from this slightly different mode of working yeah that that are relevant for the other mode i mean so i i i'm now 
you know, I, I try and spend a good chunk of my time in artistic production. And I find it such a useful, such a useful tool for, for resetting thinking. I mean, one of the things that happens when you're doing, when you're thinking in a kind of scientific mode is that there's, there's this, there's this kind of quite restrictive frame that you have to put around everything. Like you might, when you're designing an experiment, you're necessarily thinking about the analysis and you're thinking about pre-registration of the design and you're thinking about uh, how you'll get this published and the critique that critiques you might have and so on. And all of that, I'm not, I'm, all of that's super necessary. Like you, I'm not espousing throwing all that out. But if that's all we do, I think there's a tendency that we can box ourselves in to being conservative. Like we, we, there's a danger that we don't come up with creative solutions to the questions we're asking because we're so trained to be, to be risk averse. And in an artistic frame of mind, often there's, there's far less of those kinds of constraints and there's a different set of constraints in, on on what can you actually produce. You know, the constraints of your materials, uh, constraints yeah. of of time and money. Money is a very big constraint in the arts. But there's not that. There's there's an enormous kind of like freedom to make connections without being self critical, um, without imagining a reviewer saying, no, 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 you, you, you did that, but you didn't pre-register that idea and, and so on. So I find it very, very helpful to, to kind of switch between these two, two modes of activity uh, every time I'm feeling a bit frustrated or feel like I need some new ideas. I will go and um, work on a drawing or, or work on an album uh, or, you know, think about a new crazy sound installation <laughs> yeah yeah i think i mean one can look at your experiments and maybe see that right because these are very they seem very playful to use yeah. that word again and very you know artistic like you yeah. know you, you could say the baboon experiment was some kind of crazy piece of performance art <laughs> By all these baboons who didn't realize they were doing performance art, but they also didn't realize they were doing a cultural, you know, iterated learning experiment. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very. It makes me happy to hear you say that because that is definitely the. That's that means I'm at least some of the steps along the way to my to my secret goal, <laughs> not knowing the difference. I mean, I, I I do think that that I, I'm I'm I, I guess I am proud of of whenever I whenever I feel like I've come up with a design for an experiment that feels, I suppose you, you kind of know when you've got a good design, when, when it's, it feels really novel and creative and yet has a sort of sense of inevitability about it. You know, mm. that like this is how it should be. Yeah. This is, this is right. This has some kind of, this makes sense. This gets an idea across. Um, this communicate. This could communicate if it worked to, yeah. to the reader the idea that you're trying to get across. And you know that's exactly what it feels like making an artwork. Like you go, you know, I've made something. Like so, I do these kind of robot drawings, and I 
and I, I still still kind of struggle with it and and but occasionally I'll do something and I'll look at it and go you know I've not seen something like that before but it has that kind of sense of inevitability about it it it, it has some kind of sense that I don't know whether it was kind of discovered rather than than crafted and uh yeah it feels very very similar like that 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 um, so I think that the process there is the same, ultimately. Yeah, yeah that kind of un- uncanny feeling that it's almost like your your agents again when they see that that thing that maps onto the world. <laughs> like they see that sort of like, and and you, you get that feeling. Yeah, I'm doing something right here. Yeah, and I suppose we I'm have to remember something. that science is just as much part of culture, and we it, it has exactly the same kind of yeah. dynamics, and we're all just we're all just kind of. Um, Cogs in this this computational engine of yeah. uh, of culture. Well, I think that's a yeah, that's a very big point to end on. <laughs> well, I guess podcasts are part of that uh, part of that process too. So uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Simon. This has been really fun. What a what a wonderful tour that you've given us. Of oh, thank you, and thanks for inviting me on. It's been it's it's always really nice to to take a step back and try and look at the landscape from a bit further back. So um, thanks. Thank you.